G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. You might be aware a huge win for the Conservatives in the UK on Friday, so late last week, a virtual guarantee given by the British people for the Prime Minister Boris Johnson to get Brexit done And he's committing to do so by the end of January and even some headlines today suggesting he could do it before Christmas. Uh, Boris Johnson and his party won a commanding majority of 80 seats in an election designed to break the Brexit deadlock. So significant was the win that the election delivered the worst result for the Jeremy Corbyn-led Labour Party since 1935. It's considered an electoral disaster for many traditional Labour supporters in the UK. Corbyn has announced he'll step down as soon as a new leader has been elected by the party membership. Well, let's get some insights into what's been going on, bubbling along in the lead-up to the election, and now that there is such a decisive result... Wonderful to be able to welcome back to 2020 Dr. Camille Majdali, who is in the UK and intensely interested in the developments that have been going on in the UK. Camille leads Teach All Nations. Uh, He wrapped up just recently another successful Understanding the Times tour of Australia. But Camille, in the UK today and back with us. Camille, welcome along to 2020. Thanks, Neil. Nice to uh, be with 2020 and also to talk to you after your long service leave. Yes, uh, good to be back and uh, I must say uh, just a humble thank you to you for being available to give us your insights today because uh, as anyone who knows what time zones are like, uh, it's after midnight where you are and so thank you for staying up late to talk to us. Uh, give us your overall impressions of what was going through your heart and mind as things began to unfold at the start of counting uh, on Friday. What were your thoughts, Camille? Well, you know, I thought only in Australia did they call the Prime Minister by their first name. Well, they do that here in Britain, too. They don't call him Mr. Johnson. They call him Boris. <laughs> and this election was called the Brexmas election, Brexit and Christmas it was Boris's gamble because, first of all, it would be the fourth election within less than five years. That's three general elections and, of course, the Brexit referendum of June 2016. Four. British people only vote once every five years. That's one thing. Second, it's in the winter. For some reason, normally they don't want to call elections in the winter. Third, it's just before Christmas. All of this is gamble, gamble. Of course, Mr. Johnson, Boris, didn't really have any choice because Parliament was just not cooperating. He had a majority of one, even his own party, that he had rebels in the ranks. And he did the thing that really we should all remember, that when Parliament can't function, then take it to the people and let them decide. That's democracy in action. So Boris had the gamble, 
And as it turned out, he won more than he could have dreamed of. Interesting when you talk about democracy, and I know that I've had this in my thoughts for some time, that if Brexit were not to eventuate, that would be a travesty because democracy would not be fulfilled because the people said they wanted the Brexit. And so uh, the idea of blocking democracy, do you think that uh, the Corbyn-led Labour Party, was uh, that was in the minds of the people as they cast their vote late last week, uh, that somehow or other you can't just block the will of the people? Good question, Neil. A few points. First of all, I guess the elite underestimated the support for Brexit here in this country. Apparently, people who voted to remain in the EU had become so conditioned that Britain was leaving, that when there was that possibility that a party could come in like the Labour Party, which was going to negotiate and then offer another referendum as if hopefully the people will have changed their minds and all this kind of thing, even for the pro-Remain people, they found that intolerable. And so Johnson was clever in the sense that, yes, he had a catchy phrase, get Brexit done, because up till now it's just been dithering, and toing and froing, totally oblivious to what the people want. In fact, one of the political parties called the Liberal Democrats, their leader, who has only been in power for a few months since July, Joe Swinson, she was very clear, we get into power or we go into coalition, we will cancel Brexit. Like, forget what the people voted for. And as it turned out, Ms. Swinson lost her seat. And now the Liberal Democrats which are a left-wing party, have to find a new leader. So that was part of it. And part of it, too, will be Jeremy Corbyn, who has been called a Marxist, not even a socialist, a Marxist, a label he hasn't denied. He's been accused of presiding over an anti-Semitic party. He's called terrorist groups his friends. And he was going to go on a big government spending binge when, of course, austerity and prudence financially is in order. So Mr. Corbyn's, uh, how should you say, persona didn't help either for this campaign, even though Boris himself is a very controversial figure. Uh, we'll talk about ramifications of Brexit and what might be happening with free trade agreements and uh, what could happen with Australian relationships with the UK as we get our conversation underway. But uh, there is a Facebook poll question that listeners can respond to today. When you go onto facebook.com forward slash vision radio, there's a question on our regular 2020 post today that says, is the Boris Johnson election win in the UK a sign of healthy democracy? Uh, when we talk democracy and what makes a healthy democracy, this is an interesting conversation to unpack, uh, Camille. Uh, do you think that democracy in the UK is healthy, given that this vote has happened late last week? Because it didn't look especially healthy because Brexit wasn't delivered, the will of the people wasn't being delivered. Uh, what are your thoughts for the healthy nature of the UK democracy? Well, I think that UK democracy has gotten back on track and is becoming more healthy. It certainly wasn't healthy when we saw some of the behavior of the British Parliament over this past year and the excuses they came up with for not passing Brexit deals. Now, I'm not saying the Brexit deal was anything perfect, and there are what I would call principled politicians 
on in both of the major parties that had some what I call legitimate objections to the agreement. Boris Johnson has gone and renegotiated an agreement which it looks superficially pretty much like the old one. There were some differences, especially with the Northern Irish backdrop, but the point being that the British people have decided to say yes to the Get Brexit Done slogan of Boris Johnson, including what is interesting, there are constituencies that have been with the Labour Party for decades. I'm talking about since before the first, oh no, the second world war, and even one case, it's been labor for a hundred years, and they all went over to the conservative party. So somehow, it's a combination of Mr. Johnson's slogan and campaigning, and also Jeremy Corbyn's persona too, very far left, more than Bernie Sanders and AOC. Uh, That all put it in perspective. So yes, I think it has come back on track to being a healthy democracy in the United Kingdom. Such a decisive win, Camille. And, you know, if you believe what's going on and the commentary in much of the mainstream media, which, as we know, it tends to fall very left-wing. So uh, uh, so even the commentary we might have been hearing in Australia may have been reflecting the idea that it was, you know, such a close election that it was going to be, but then ends up being a landslide uh, for the people who would be most affected by Brexit. I mean, the fears that people have about jobs and the economy and those sorts of things. Clearly, the majority of Brits, uh, they're not so concerned about those things. Uh, What they're more more concerned about is uh, is the good things that can come from having uh, a way that you can uh, self-determine your own government. Uh, What are your thoughts on on the general feeling that you might have uh, caught on to, catching the pulse of people that you're talking to uh, in the UK about their feelings around the the Brexit and uh, the, the need to get it done? Well, in some ways, it's interesting. There was a little bit of similarity between this British election just passed and the Australian federal election of May 2019 when Scott Morrison had the upset victory or he he won the unwinnable election. Uh, There's some similarity there. Of course, Boris Johnson's majority is just amazing. But I want to hasten to add, first, talk to people, I deal with the you know, a lot of Christian people, obviously, where I'm at, and at least among the Christian people who are talking, they very much wanted a conservative win. They want Brexit. I know of one prayer meeting, personally, that has been going on for years, every single week, for the Brexit. So what I'm getting at, like with ScoMo's election in May, like with other upset elections in recent history, there has been a massive amount of prayer. Massive. And so I've coined a phrase that if you vote in the heavens through prayer, it will greatly affect the ballot box on earth. So people, I think, really, even as I said, the pro-Remain people, or at least they voted Remain, I found that the Brexit people were probably more committed to Brexit than many Remain people were to staying in the EU. Once it was decided that Britain was leaving, they, they said, okay, we're leaving, let's get on with it. And so the behavior of Parliament, as it were, saying no to four times the withdrawal agreements, probably got up a lot of people's goat and they said, we've had enough, let's get this thing done. Interested in what you're saying, Camille, about the Christian community and the amount of prayer 
that was going on in the lead up to the election because it raises a very significant question about what it is that mobilises the Christian community in a democracy. And sometimes it's not, you know, whether or not we're fulfilling the Great Commission, but uh, when we recognise that there are some powerful issues in democracy, something there triggers Christian believers uh, to all of a sudden pursue righteousness and pursue what they think is right uh, according to uh, according to their faith. So it's not just what you read from the scriptures that mobilizes the Christian believers, but uh, but also what goes on in a political sense. Is this a good sign, or is that a is that a fair enough comment? Well, yes, I think it is. First of all, there is both in the UK and Australia, technically speaking, men in the electorate are apathetic. They don't care. So that leaves it wide open for two groups of people, and that is left-wing activists and devout conservative Christians. And in both cases, uh, the activists are very much, how should I say, mobilized. But I'm finding now the same is happening with Christians. And as I always hasten to add, when talking about the role of Christians in prayer and elections, I'm thoroughly convinced God does not belong to any political party. He doesn't endorse candidates in the way we understand that. But God does respond to effectual, fervent prayer. And frankly, Neil, in the last few years, and both in Australia and Britain, and let's not forget the United States, especially now with what's going on, that Christian people who actually pay attention to what's happening in the nation are so, shall we say, concerned and alarmed. It has done wonders for their prayer life, absolutely. And and they're scoring goals in the prayer closet and in the ballot box here on earth because of those prayers. So, yes, I think that we are looking at a very amazing thing. It's almost like the prelude to revival when you get so many of God's people praying, not so much just for a candidate, but for God's will to be done, for righteousness to be had, for his church to be free, to continue to give forth the Great Commission. It's wonderful to see that kind of impetus. Helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Our special guest this hour is Dr. Camille Magdaly on the line, live from the UK. Camille leads Teach All Nations. He wrapped up just recently another successful Understanding the Times tour of Australia and uh, within his uh, way of talking about global events. Of course, the Brexit was really central to those issues. And now we have the win by Boris Johnson and the Conservatives late last week. We're talking about that. Our talkback line is open on 1-800-316-316. You might like to join in our conversation. Before we take anything another step further, Camille, why don't we take a call from Judith calling in from Brisbane. Hi, Judith. Welcome. Hi, hi, Neil. Hi, Judith. What are your thoughts for our conversation? Oh, I think I think as Mel was saying, I can't remember the exact words. What more is wrought through prayer than men have ever dreamed of, or is that true? Because I pray all the time for Scott Morrison, and during, before the election, I know a lot of people thought he wouldn't win. I thought, gee, God does listen to our prayers, and He knows we're serious. And also, I do pray for Donald Trump and Boris Johnson. I, I thought it was really good. 
And I think that the message there for Labor. But anyway, that's all I want to say, Neil. Uh, thank you so much, Judith. Uh, a thought or two from you, Camille, from for Judith. Well, first of all, God bless Judith for praying, <laughs> especially praying for leadership. She's fulfilling a very important scriptural injunction found in 1 Timothy 2, 1-4, to that we are, first of all, to pray for kings and all who are in authority. And I, I have been, on this last Understanding the Times tour throughout Australia, urging Aussies to pray for political leadership, not just at the federal level, at the state level, and pray for premiers and pray for opposition leaders and pray for all these different ones. Frankly, if we would pray for them more than whinge about them, man, we would we probably have revival. It would be as simple as that. So it's a good thing that we pray for leaders. Look, I've prayed for, for leaders for years, and it didn't matter whether I personally supported them politically. What mattered is God's Word said so. So three cheers for Judith in praying for leadership. Judith, thank you so much for your call. Our talkback line open on 1-800-316-316. Just to uh, bring into this a little bit of controversy here that sometimes comes up, and it's interesting as we're listening to uh, your conversation, your thoughts from the UK today, Camille, and talking about these things, because the idea of praying for leaders uh, and the idea as a Christian that you only pray for one side or that you might be praying for leaders on two sides, but you're really wanting one removed, uh, you're really making an assessment, aren't you, in your own heart, in your own mind, how you've weighed things up as to which side of the political spectrum might be best reflecting your Christian uh, worldview. How do you describe this idea of, you know, people who are saying, oh, I prayed for Boris Johnson and he won because we just didn't want that evil guy, Jeremy Corbyn, to be elected? Uh, how, do you, how do you sort of weigh up those sorts of thoughts on how you pray in an election like that? Well, it's an interesting point, Neil. The thing is, the motivation for prayer among those that are actually praying can be exactly what you say. They either they they like a particular candidate, so they want them to win because they believe they will be consistent with biblical Christian values. It can also be, and uh, look, we can't limit it to not, not being this way. Praying for someone you don't want in because they you believe that they would be very dangerous and damaging to the nation. Those are some of the things that are going on. But obviously, for me personally, in a public sphere, I'm very scrupulous to uh, not be partisan, especially when I do Understanding the Times across Australia. I mean, we have people from every stripe and political persuasion coming to meetings, and I, my goal is not to antagonize anyone. My goal is to inform and inspire people to know what's going on and then invest in their spiritual lives that's what we're trying to do. So, But look, there have been public prayer meetings that have gone on, and I think that what people are praying about in the public meetings is for values and for issues more than for candidates. And remember, in Australia, we have some excellent Christian organizations that are informing people about the political sphere and even assessing the values of candidates and political parties. I think that's a very valid and wonderful thing. In other words, here's the issues. These are what the different parties believe in. Pray and vote accordingly. 
I can all say all I can say is yes and amen. And of course, uh, when we talk about policies and values and weighing those up one side versus another, uh, I know that a lot of Christian churches and pastors and priests in the pulpit are reluctant uh, to, in fact, uh, endorse any particular side. Uh, But this comes down to a very important point here, Camille, that if there is a solid, sound, biblical, theological perspective on some of the controversial policies that are being presented, it won't be difficult for people in church to be able to make an assessment which side they should vote for. What are your thoughts on on the fact that Christian leaders, they don't uh, come down and say, you should vote for the Conservatives or for the Labor Party, but uh, but they actually uh, their responsibility is to be able to uh, shed some light on what the Bible might teach about those sorts of values and those sorts of policies. Well, I would agree not to from the pulpit, whether you're a guest minister like me or whether you're a pastor of a local church, I would not be endorsing candidates from the pulpit at all. But I do believe it is incumbent on the church to preach and teach biblical values, and where necessary, in the midst of an election campaign, simply say, here are some of the things to watch out for as you make up your own mind on a vote. The issues of life, issues of education, issues of family, there's so many things out there, and therefore there's nothing wrong with preaching and teaching biblical values, especially in the lead-up to an election. Okay, let's talk about Boris Johnson, because, you know, as people made comparison with him when he took over the prime ministership, you know, the sort of Trump comparisons, and it's not just the hairstyle, uh, a few sort of, you know, skeletons in the closet, those sorts of things, uh, things that Christians will often uh, highlight, uh, potentially uh, moral issues uh, from the past or even the present. Uh, What are your thoughts about Boris Johnson as a leader of the Conservatives in the UK? Well, Boris Johnson is an interesting character. He was the former mayor of London, and he was the leader of the Leave campaign during the EU referenda of 2016. In his personal life, he's a bit of a soap opera. Currently, he's doing something I don't think has ever happened in the UK, and that is he's at number 10 Downing Street, not living with his wife, but with his girlfriend, while he's still technically married to his estranged wife. Unlike Donald Trump, who, yes, Donald Trump has had three marriages, but his children adore him, and Boris's children apparently can't stand him. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's a little bit different, even though they've had multiple partners, and, and he's known to be a philanderer and all that. So he's not morally conservative in any way, and even in policies, he's uh, not that I would say he's leftist leftist, but he is, uh, how should I say, he agrees on platforms in a few cases that even the Labour Party would agree in. As I read a brilliant, uh, brilliant blog that said it's much easier for someone from the right to go a bit left and capture some from the left than for the left to start moving right. And I believe Boris, especially he's been beating the drum for the National Health Service, which here in Britain is a sacred cow. You don't even talk about hamburger with his sacred cow of the NHS. And part of what Corbyn did, and it apparently was false, is he said there was agreement with Trump to sell the NHS or give the Americans access to it in a trade agreement. 
And Trump was briefly in Britain recently for NATO, and he says, I wouldn't take the NHS if you gave it to me on a silver platter. The, the point is, Boris is championing the NHS, which uh, is a single-payer system of health care. And what I'm getting at, he is not a classic conservative, neither in moral issues, neither in political economic issues. He's conservative enough to lead a conservative party, but I guess it's a little bit like John Howard's Liberal Party Broad Church. That's what it's like in the Liberal Party here, or not, sorry, the Conservative Party here in the United Kingdom. Our special guest and talking through these issues today, and we're talking about the UK and the Brexit. We're going to be talking about uh, some issues to do with the uh, impeachment proceedings in the United States. Dr. Camille Magdaly is our guest. He's in the UK, stayed up late for us today uh, to have a conversation on 2020. Camille leads Teach All Nations, uh, of course just recently wrapped up another successful Understanding the Times tour of Australia. The website for Teach All Nations is tan.org.au. Camille, uh, we'll get on to Donald Trump in just a few moments, but just to stay for a moment with the UK election and the feeling that you have been getting since you're on the ground there in the UK, there's some suggestion that the British are, uh, you know, the accusation, they're turning their back on the European Union by deciding to leave the Union, to Brexit from it. Uh, What are your feelings and what are your thoughts that you've ascertained from people you've talked about in the UK? Well, basically, Brexit is a reassertion of British sovereignty over its own affairs. And this is rather important because, remember, they couldn't even make a trade agreement with anybody. It had to all be done through the EU. I mean, they can't even send a satellite into space until 27 countries agree. It's that kind of a situation. It was never a proper fit of Britain being who Britain is and the EU since day one. But in addition, the colonies that have become vibrant nations the Anglosphere, as we call it, and of course, Australia is key in that, they have felt rather betrayed over the last 46 years because, well, Britain was now part of this European club and seemed to have less time for its fellow Anglophiles or, or Anglos, shall we say. You know, remember, these are nations that only imbibe British uh, governmental and historical and cultural and spiritual values but have fought valiantly side by side in world wars. Now it's possible that Britain can re-engage with its own in the Anglosphere, as we call it. That's a good thing, too. So those are a couple points to make at the effect of Brexit. It will not be easy, because after all, it's a 46-year-old marriage that's having now a big divorce. But I believe Britain, in the long run, will be better off under this scenario. Of course, we must pray that Brexit goes through as smoothly as possible with little as disruption as possible, and so on and so forth. But Mr. Johnson has a mandate, and he's got plenty of time at this point to see it through. 
Let's talk about Australia in the mix there, because as you say, a tearing apart, uh, the painful divorce from the EU that the Brexit will bring, and undoubtedly there'll be some messy things in there. But uh, as you're indicating, uh, this idea that re-engaging with the colonies, (laughs) of which we are one of those, may actually be good for Australia, and it may be a perhaps even an essential thing for people in the UK to know that the colonies are there and and happy to reunite in that family sense. And I guess they do that by, you know, obviously formal deals like the free trade deals and such things like that. But, uh, but when you're talking about these things in a big picture sense... Uh, there's, it's deeper than just talking dollars and cents and crunching numbers. Uh, what you're talking about here is, uh, is, you know, who really likes us and uh, re-engaging with the colonies, a very positive thing between the UK and Australia, Camille. Well, of course it would be. There's, Australia's history with the UK has been different to the history of the United States, for example, and the UK, because the United States came into being through a blood-filled revolutionary war and of course i was born and raised in the u.s i have a fair bit of understanding of its history and its uh, politics but uh, yeah australia's had a pretty relatively benign kind of relationship and there have been a lot of positives although i know there was the issue during the second world war well before our time neil <laughs> of australia having to look to america as an ally you know the big brother kind of thing especially in defense but I believe there's a, let me put it this way, Britain is even learning from Australia, which doesn't surprise me. Boris Johnson, I just actually heard him say, we want to adopt Australia's point system in immigration. In other words, taking its cue from Australia. Again, that doesn't surprise me at all, knowing what I know about Australia, knowing what I know about Britain. There's a lot of cross-pollination that would be very, very positive. One thing many Aussies might be interested to hear is if you come to the UK now, you don't have to go in that serpentine queue to enter in, you know, to get your passport stamped. You can now use the same e-gate as the British use when they come back home. So that's a nice development. Uh, Don't have to fill out forms, don't have to stand in a long queue, don't have to have persnickety questions asked by the immigration official. You can just breeze right in. It's almost as if Britain is rolling out the welcome mat for people who speak English that were once part of her domain. I'll invite listeners to join in an online poll that we have running at the moment on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Vision Radio, a regular 2020 post, and we've been doing quite a few polls of recent times, but there's a question there that says, is the Boris Johnson election win in the UK a sign of healthy democracy? Uh, there's been 112 votes, I might say, 112 listeners who've responded to that. Uh, 89% say yes. say no at the present time. An opportunity there to cast your vote and then you can leave a comment too as to why you might say that. And there's a number of comments that have come through. Let me just say, uh, Nita uh, says, election results are the true indicator of how the people feel because you certainly can't rely on mainstream media. Another Facebook comment from Rob says, it's a sign of democracy the fact that Corbyn didn't get in 
is a sign that people may be waking up. So that's healthy. Uh, you can leave your note when you go online at facebook.com forward slash vision radio. I uh, wanted to touch on some of the things that are developing in the United States. And of course, when we talk about the United States, the only thing people talk about there is impeachment proceedings against Donald Trump. Uh, what are your thoughts for developments there, Camille? Well, we don't have enough hours in the day for that one. <laughs> we'll need to be brief. That's true. It's a, yeah, it's 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 crazy. I have observed three different impeachment scenarios: the the Nixon imp, potential impeachment of 1974, the Bill Clinton definite impeachment of 1998, and now the Trump impeachment of 2019. In fact, uh, as far as we know, Mr. Trump will be impeached for Christmas, and then they all go on their holiday break. Look, it's uh, it's really concerning, uh, but hardly surprising that there's an impeachment. They have been talking about the Democratic Party impeaching Trump since the day he got elected. I mean, he wasn't even in office to do anything, and they're already talking impeachment. It's ludicrous. You actually have to be in office. You have to be there for a little while. You have to do something brazenly criminal, treasonous, bribery, high crimes and misdemeanors. You have to do all that first before you can uh, impeach. It's a safety valve for democracy, but it's not a something that you weaponize in order to bludgeon your political opposition. But apparently that's what we're seeing. And... You know, with Nixon, what people need to remember is in Mr. Nixon's case, Watergate was far more pervasive than anyone imagined. And so there was bipartisan support for impeachment and conviction. In fact, the reason Mr. Nixon resigned is his own colleagues said, you better get out of here because we'll have no choice. We'll have to vote for conviction because the evidence is so great. Bill Clinton's case, what was interesting is he was convicted by an independent counsel who came up with 11 charges. I think they were all felonies, 11. And during the meantime, Clinton was working with the Republican opposition in the Congress. They were passing legislation. They were, it was almost like business as usual. And you have this independent counsel coming in with the charges Newt Gingrich, who was the Speaker of the House, then says we had no choice. We had to go through with it. And basically, Clinton, uh, he did get off. He wasn't convicted. Although, man, in the Senate, still, it was like 50-50 against him. But you needed 67 or a two-thirds majority. In Trump's case, as far as we know, there's no felonies. There's, it, he released transcripts. That's hardly what I call being opaque. And uh, very willing to... Uh, work with whoever he needed to, but Nancy Pelosi pretty much said it. We have been planning impeachment for two and a half years, but the pretext only came up in July. And one official said, oh, look, even if we fail this time, we'll just keep impeaching, impeaching until he's moved out of office. This is absolutely unprecedented, and frankly, Neil, it's unacceptable. Well, it's a political warfare, isn't it? And if you're on the opposite side of politics and you're trying to plot some level of strategy and another election looming, then you've got to go with whatever you can get your hands on. And so, as you say, the evidence appears to be weak 
against President Trump. And then even if there was an impeachment, uh, it really just is more like a slap on the wrist. Uh, So there's a certain sense in which uh, there's an awful lot more important things to discuss, but they never seem to make the headlines because impeachment dominates the headlines in the U.S., well, it, it's dominating. In one sense, it is. In one sense, uh, it isn't. It's funny because I know Mr. Trump is continuing on as if nothing bad is happening. He's doing his his job. Uh, the problem is Congress doesn't seem to be doing their job. I'm I'm at a loss to even think. Apart from a, I think a free trade agreement with Mexico, just really, what have they actually done since the Democrats took over uh, the control of the House of Representatives? Part of the issue, they, they must know that chances of conviction in the Senate are almost nil. And that's what Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has actually said. <laughs> it's like zero chance there'll be a conviction. So why are they doing this? Possibly one of the reasons they're doing it anyway is to create all kinds of adverse headlines leading up to the primary elections, which start early next year. I mean, we're talking about in two months' time, there'll be the primaries in various states, including the Iowa caucus and the New Hampshire primary, which is always the straw in the wind. So they want to have this negative publicity that hopefully will affect the primaries in favor of their own candidates. That's the only reason I can think of. The other thing is they are just so concerned that Trump is going to run and he's going to win in November of next year that that's their means of prevention is to just try to get him out by impeachment. And so if you can dominate the headlines and the commentary with something that paints the president in a bad light, uh, then if that's your only method of uh, competing, then you've got to take that. And that seems to be that's what's uh, dominating the headlines in the US. And as you say, next year is an election year. And uh, the Democrats in the House of Representatives will vote to impeach Donald Trump, but it can't be repeated in the Senate. And therefore, will that be a, like a reversal? Or how does that work? Do you know, Camille, as to, as to how that would work? Well, first of all, impeachment is not actually what I call democratic. It is, as I said earlier, a safety valve against a, a dangerous, rogue and corrupt official. And it's not just limited to presidents. It can be for anybody, judges or congresspeople or so on. It is there as a protection. It's like a spare tire in the, in the boot. It's like you know, a fire extinguisher in the hallway. It's there in case of an emergency. It's not there as a partisan thing. But uh, to me, to have this impeachment go through is nullifying the votes as it's often been said, of 63 million Americans who voted for this man, Donald Trump. Remember, democracy must be respected because and adhered to, or else we're going to lose it. And this is not exactly what I would call a democratic thing. It is a partisan political weapon which could very well backfire as time goes on. Well, 2020 will be an election year in the U.S., Camille, and uh, there'll be an emerging Democratic uh, candidate. Uh, All of that process is still going through the motions. Uh, Any predictions for how things might look in the coming months as, as things start to progress? Well, it could be similar to the U.K. in this respect. 
the declared Democratic candidates, even though the mainstream media says, oh, there's the moderates and there's the more leftists, as far as I can tell, they're all leftist. There's none of them that are moderate, not even remotely moderate. And therefore, billionaire Michael Bloomberg, former mayor of New York, has stepped in. I think Bloomberg was a Republican, but now he's running as a Democrat, which is really his true heartland, too, by the way, uh, because it doesn't look like any of these guys are going to get traction. Technically speaking, Joe Biden would be the front runner, and for only one reason, and that's name recognition. He was vice president with Barack Obama for eight years. So people know who he is. And he has a nice smile, and he supposedly he's affable like the uncle, you know, across the street kind of thing. But there is Biden. He's not a strong candidate, and he's, uh, he's got a lot of baggage, too. So I'm not sure it could be a dark horse come on the horizon. Hillary has made noises again. This would be her third time. <laughs> yep. They say third time lucky, but uh, Hillary, some have even said there's a conspiracy to voice Michelle Obama even on the electric because apparently she was popular as a first lady. That doesn't necessarily translate as being popular as a presidential candidate. So, look, it could be a Biden-Trump face-off, or it could be somebody else who might have the gravitas to actually try to pull it through. But it's, you know, Mr. Trump has a good economy under him at the moment, and it's unheard of to oust a sitting president when the uh, the train economically is rolling nice and steady. As an outsider looking in on the fishbowl of U.S. politics, Camille, I can't help but notice the age of all of these candidates. And uh, interesting that, uh, you know, some of them are so aging that uh, they may not be able to commit to a second term if the opportunity <laughs> arose. So, and, and it's an interesting thing because... Uh, uh, in history, uh, there are a lot of presidents who've been quite young in their election. So Americans are obviously looking at age and wisdom right now uh, over youth uh, because uh, uh, because in, in past times, and I'm just thinking of uh, John F. Kennedy, uh, who was actually a young man when he was elected to the presidency, uh, but yeah, it certainly... It certainly is the case now that uh, that Americans are looking to age and wisdom, uh, not not youthfulness. Well, I'm not sure if they're looking to age and wisdom, or that's just it's the older ones that are putting their hand up. Yeah. Remember, Ronald Reagan was 69, and now that seems relatively young. He's <laughs> <to what> <laughs> a young man. I mean, yes. we have we have uh, Michael Bloomberg. I think he's 78, and Joe Biden. He is 77, and Bernie Sanders also 78. Mr. Trump is 73, and three years into his presidency, he would, if he gets reelected, he'll be around 78 when he leaves, the same age as Michael Bloomberg <laughs> and Bernie Sanders are right now. So I'm not sure that America's looking for this. And of course, we had John McCain running against Barack Obama in 2008. And John McCain, even back then, was 72. Now, again, that seems, oh, <laughs> more reasonable than some of these in the late 70s. I think Joe Biden just recently said, oh, no, if I run and I win, I'll do the full two terms. I just think a day or two ago. So, yeah, I think it's just the the, the, the older ones, maybe they do definitely have the experience, 
but they're the ones putting their hands up, and that's what the way it is. <laughs> well, there's all sorts of things, no doubt, to, to keep an eye on, and no doubt we will be talking about some of these things into the new year because you follow these things very closely. And uh, I know you like to have the opportunity, Camille, to be able to reflect on these things uh, in the way that you do, bringing a biblical Christian perspective into what's happening around the world. Just a couple of minutes left in our conversation, and we've been talking about the Brexits and the election of uh, the uh, Boris Johnson Conservatives late last week. Uh, a little bit of reflection here on what's going on in the US. Uh, your thoughts in general about the way things are developing around the world because when you bring a Christian perspective into these things and just a couple of minutes remaining but when we're looking at these things and trying to make sense of them as Christians in light of biblical prophecy wondering what to do next what are we supposed to do if we have any particular special information or insight about things that are going on what's your thoughts for listeners who might be either concerned or fearful or even in a sense just keeping entertained by the politics, uh, what ought we be doing as Christian believers? Well, Jesus said it best. We're to be watching and praying. Both. One eye open, one eye closed. I can't think of any better advice than that. We need to know what's going on. We can't hide our head in the sand. But at the same time, there's great hope. There's God. And God has wonderful promises for his people and a wonderful command to fear not. Just recently, I saw, I'm talking about in the last few days, a prayer meeting. It was what I would call a revival Holy Spirit prayer meeting. And you know where it was happening, Neil? Hmm. In the White House. Wow. <laughs> these, these ministers and intercessors came to the White House to pray for the president, and it was like any kind of meeting that we would normally see in a, in a, in a prayer time in church. So to me, they're doing the right thing. They are watching. Obviously, they don't like what they're seeing, so they're praying. And let's make no mistake about it, prayer makes a difference. Or as I said earlier, if you vote in heaven with prayer, then you will affect the ballot box on earth. Not just the ballot box. Prayer will affect everything. What we need is revival, and prayer is the way we get it. Well, significant things going on politically in all of these nations around the world. Uh, we talk about Western nations. There's all sorts of things we could talk about in other nations as well. But Camille Magdalene, always so good getting your insights. We know that God is about fulfilling his will. Uh, he's the king. Uh, we talk about a kingdom and he has his uh, time purposes, uh, his eternal purposes that he's about fulfilling. And so always appreciate your insights as we connect faith to life in that sense of understanding what's going on in the world and knowing what we are to do as Christian believers. I'll point people to the Teach All Nations website for your ability to connect with Camille to understand what's happening uh, in the times that are going on around the world uh, to connect too with what he will be doing with uh, perhaps another Understanding the Times Tour next year. Uh, Camille Magdaly, I guess, tan.org.au Teach All Nations, tan .org.au I mentioned that we're talking to Camille live from the UK where it's approaching about 1am in the morning there. Camille, I want to thank you so much for staying up late to share these thoughts and your heart with our listeners today on 2020. Well, thank you, Neil, and God bless Australia. 
Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.